But I do believe that we do have a kind of an edge by starting in music, by being only focused on creatives and being focused on the creator's economy. Our streaming platform is focused on that at the moment. Like we're going to stay in that boat for about the next five years until we grow out of that boat, until we need to get a bigger boat. But until then, we are really focused on helping people start a digital business via their voice or their face. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where being thankful but not expressing our gratitude is like wrapping a present, putting a bow on top, and then not giving it to anyone. Well, I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Well, this is the time of year where gratitude is front and center. We have so much to be thankful for, and yes, fully aware that people are going through rough times all over the world. And, you know, I remember growing up, and we had different traditions at different holidays, Thanksgiving was one where we were almost always home. It was my parents and three of us kids. We didn't visit family on Thanksgiving, and they didn't come to our house. We did that at Christmas, but it was too far a trip for Thanksgiving. And, you know, it could have just been us, but it seems like we were never alone. Often we'd have another family or two over, and then there were other people as well. Some of those other people we knew well. Others we really didn't know well, but they were always welcome. Some of them single parents, exchange students, widows, and always one or two people who would have spent the day alone. And, you know, I kind of understood it then, but I think about that a lot differently now. You know, I'm very grateful for family, and that experience really made me keenly aware that not everybody has that. You know, some are far away, and maybe they do have it, but it's, you know, not right there around the holidays. Maybe they're far away, and, you know, we could be that for them at least for a day. And I know there were a lot of times where they were really grateful for the invitation. And I remember one year in particular that one of the people was invited and didn't want to come at first. You know, it's kind of awkward hanging out, you know, at a holiday, like a family holiday with a bunch of strangers, right? Like, you know, I'm going to be the odd person out. And it, then some of us are stranger than others, probably. But in the end, you know, decided to come and afterwards just, you know, said over and over, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so glad that I came. And that's something that really stuck with me all these years. You know, before that, I really didn't understand how you know, a small gesture like that could mean so much. But I think as we look back, often some of those little things in our minds when we look back really turned out to be the big memorable things. It could be life-changing things for some people. So this Thanksgiving, definitely take the opportunity and let those around you know that you're grateful for them. You know, like I said at the top, I mean, not expressing that is like wrapping a present and then not giving it. So be sure to give that gift of gratitude and take some time, invite someone over to be family for a day, make a new friend. You know, in the most connected generation ever, the world is still experiencing a loneliness epidemic and you and I, we can be part of the cure and it means way, way more than you can ever imagine. 
So do that. Well, in last week's episode, we talked with Alex Colmer, founder and CEO of VidMob, a platform for intelligent, creative brands. He's doing some amazing things with AI and machine learning to pinpoint what points of your ads or other assets are or aren't working. So, you know, if you're advertising, you know that it's harder than ever to cut through the noise. And it's not easy, or I guess it is easy, to feel like something is or isn't working. Without data, we really don't know. But it's that data-driven creative, that's really where it's at. So if you missed it, go back and check out that episode last week with Alex. It's fantastic. I'm excited about my guest this week. It is Patrick Hill, founder and CEO of Dystopia, a streaming platform for creatives. So Dystopia is a hosting and streaming service dedicated to curated artists, podcasters, film directors, and content creators seeking freedom with simple merchandising integration. That's pretty cool. Patrick is doing some really interesting things combining original content, education, and merchandising, not only in the U.S., but across the globe. We get to hang out at Podcast Movement here in Dallas, and it's always great to meet people face-to-face, but now it's time for you to meet him right here. Say hello to Patrick Hill. Hey, Patrick. Welcome to SAS Fuel. Good morning. How are you? Very good. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you transitioned from banking to building a a podcast platform with merchandise and, and so much more content platform. So tell me about that journey. Oh, it was a short conversation, but long journey. I was working in the banking industry in Charlotte, North Carolina, straight out of uh, grad school, got recruited by one of the major banks. And I was just working there, you know, typical corporate grind, day in, day out. And one day I was in my living room, someone ring the doorbell, happened to be my good friend. And at that time, about, you know, the ideal, this is when the ideal first festered. He knocked on my door, opened the door, rang the doorbell, came in. He said, hey, I need for you to make some copies and of my mixtape for me. And he had this container of like blank CDs. I was like, what are you doing? Like, no one, <laughs> what, what are we going to do? That's great. Stand outside with these CDs. So I was like, I said, hey, man, no one's, I know that's what you may think you have to do is pass out the CDs, but it's a way better way to do it. It's how about you give me the music, I'll build you a website, and then you hand out cards, and you tell everyone to go to your website, you tweet it out, you put it on Facebook. Instagram was around, but it wasn't as popular as Facebook at that time still. And Twitter was the thing at that current, right before Instagram took off. And I said, do that. Let's send out a link to your website, and then people can pay you with PayPal. So he says, cool, let's do that. And so he did that. And it was way more successful than he thought. He had like 50 friends from New York purchases his album or his mixtape for $20 a piece. He was like, yo, this is the most I ever made in like two hours. Wow, that's great. And then that's right. And so then I started thinking, I say, like, man, I want to just build websites for every every artist who wants to do this. And and I just build in the website, the initial platform. And then they can make whatever they want to make, 100% commission-free. And so I wrote down an idea. I started doing some mock-ups. And then, you know, work kind of took over. And I kind of sat on the idea for like two years and three years and then four years. And then Netflix took off. And I was like, ooh, I need to get back in this thing. 
SoundCloud was going down. People had kind of thought, thought, forgot about Bandcamp. And Spotify started to really take off. And then the titles of the world started really take off. So I said, you know what? Let me get back into this. So we started building music again. Started building the platform. And we're allowing people to upload their music. We kind of got a lot of buzz in, in indie markets. And there are indie markets. People don't believe that. But there are niche markets across the country that sure. where indie music thrives, like Houston, Nashville, Seattle, pockets of even like Atlanta, where indie music thrives. But one day, an artist uploaded a podcast episodes as tracks. And was like, and this is when like maybe a year or two right before the pandemic, right before, you know, podcast has been around for years, but sure. it really took off that year right before the pandemic. And then like everybody wanted a podcast, everybody wanted to be on a podcast, so on and so forth. So I was like, man, we already have the technology. We already allow people to upload audio files. What am I missing here? And the key thing that we were missing as a platform was RSS feeds. We didn't apply an RSS feed. We just let you upload and let you play it. And so once we got over that hump, that's how I got here. So now we didn't rip out music, even though we have way more podcasters than we do have musicians. There's about a, a two to one ratio, but we just kept every feature we left for musicians. So we don't need to throw away that code or rip that feature out. We just allowed them to upload a podcast and music. And now we're just adding on things to help content creators, whether you're a musician or a podcast. And then we, about eight months ago, we integrated merch because artists sell merch. Podcasters have to supplement the advertising. Advertising spin is trending down outside of the pandemic. So we just wanted to give them more avenues or ways to um, supplement that. And that makes a lot of sense that uh, they're able to monetize in multiple ways. So it's not just one stream. But that, that's definitely one thing that you've changed that is different from the, the Spotify model or some others is really allowing artists to monetize their creations, whether that's music or podcasts or you know whatever it is that they're doing, that they're able to, to sell that. And it sure beats selling a CD on the street corner or giving it away. Right. Exactly. So we have just been tapping into that. The creators economy, creators economy. How can we give everyone a way to monetize their content. We all know that digital content is really at the surface of where we're going. Without know, a as doubt. We just saw, yeah, as we just saw, you know, currencies going digital. People are going digital <laughs> in the metaverse. Like everything we do <laughs> right. is eventually going to be going digital. So we want to give everyone, my motto I always tell people is that during the gold rush, you know, Everybody went out west looking for gold and you couldn't look for gold. You couldn't chase that dream. You couldn't do what you needed to do without a shovel and a bucket. And my, our philosophy is to provide you with a shovel and apply you in a, and supply you with a bucket. And what you go find is yours to keep. You don't want a commission off of it. You don't want anything from it, but we're going to give you the tools so you can at least try to be successful. That's really smart. And again, that is something that is very different from other platforms is just the way that you're monetizing that your model is not based on, you know, commissions or, or percentage of, uh, you know, what the artists are doing. No. And that was one of the best things about starting with music first, just keeping the royalty model. So we have a royalty model built into our podcast plays 
just as if you were a musician and your music was on Spotify, every time it plays, even though it might be a small amount, you still get paid for your content being played as long as it's original. So that piece we had in music playing by law, we had to pay royalties. So we kept that actual feature and just rolled it over to podcasts. So podcasters have options now. They can do the traditional method, which is through RSS feed, and everyone gets to listen, and, and that's just how they choose to do And it's pure podcast hosting. But we also gave them an option to leave it exclusive to the platform, and anyone who comes in through our platform via the paywall will pay for those plays. We just want to make sure you're getting paid for your plays. It's a very simple model. If, it, For instance, SAS Fuel, you know, you guys did the hard work from the podcast cover to the production to setting up video to set. You guys did the hard work coming with the questions, finding the entrepreneurs to interview. And at some point, you know, those questions and those responses become curated content that was developed by SAS Fuel. As if you were to write a song, I composed it, I produced it, I put the sound to it. Sure. And you might have a team, you know, everyone has a team to put things together, but you should be accurately paid for that, especially if you want to monetize per play. Now, that may not be your business model, but if you decide, you should have the option. Let me just say, everyone should have the option of how they want to monetize their business model. When you start any other business, if you went out and start a restaurant, it's up to you of how you want to deem your business model. But for right now, podcasters are stuck in this advertising business model. Like they force everyone into an advertising sponsorship business model. And you can you can't just only do that. You could, you should be able to do more than that. You should be able to sell a T-shirt. You should be able to get a sponsor or you should be able to get pay, pay per play. That's interesting. Did you have a background in music or creativity before starting Dystopia? Yes. I actually used to own a boutique. So that's how the merch easily got integrated. Okay. I used to actually own a streetwear boutique called uh, Benjamin Bear. And it was named Benjamin Bear simply because my alma mater, my undergraduate, their mascot was the Blue Bears. Nice. And and everyone who goes to school wants to be successful and make money. So we put Benjamin in front of Bear. So the objective of going to school is to be successful and get a good job and hopefully make Benjamins. There so you go. Benjamin Bear. <laughs> yeah. So we, <laughs> so we named it Benjamin Bear. And I had that brand for years. Like you can Google it. We had a storefront. I, I traveled to China, sourcing material. I used to go to all the trade shows in New York and LA and Vegas and picking up some of the unique brands. And then when I got more focused on the platform, I decided to integrate that into dystopia. So that's my creative side. But from the music side, I only have a musical talent from just listening. I know what's I know what's good to me. Sure. <laughs> I know what sounds good. You know to what me. you like. Right. That's from the music side. And I am a you know a small connoisseur of podcasts. And I just like to hear people talk junk, like in sports <laughs> and, and just <laughs> culture stuff. So, you know, I listen to a lot of like brilliant idiots and and just some the CNN quick you know, the top five things you need to know today. And they actually drop that podcast three times a day. 
once in the morning, once at noon, and once in the evening. So you're like all caught up. So those are kind of my favorite parts. So what was it like starting Dystopia in, uh, and moving out into that and really building a platform? You said you sat on the idea for a while. And then how quickly did it take off once you launched? So once we launched, and I think that's how you a lot of people discovered us, is we we were actually in like a beta for a year and a half, two years. Okay. We were definitely in a beta for a year, and then a pandemic happened. And so then when you're not already working or being known, so like Zoom, everyone knew what Zoom was. So when the pandemic happened, everyone knew to go to Zoom or WebEx. You had, you had two choices. Zoom or WebEx, because they were well-known brands. Sure. But startups kind of got buried even more, especially if you were someone that can actually help. And there was a lot of nervousness, so a lot of private capital dried up. It is still typically kind of hard to raise capital, but coming out of the pandemic is when we really thrived. There were more podcasts. There were more people wanting to do podcasts. There were more people in the creator's economy to supplement their income, especially if they their income was paused or they were laid off due to the pandemic. So we just really took off from that standpoint. It is still difficult because by nature, we have big tier competitors. We don't have a lot of small competitors. All our competitors are big guys. You know, from the podcast side, you have ACAST. From the creator's economy side, you got Patreon. Just from the pure podcast music side, you got Spotify. And then from, we are releasing video very soon. So once we release video, we jump into a whole nother you know, ocean of, of uh, competitors, right. Netflix and YouTube and things like that. So at the end of the day, we are still a streaming platform. We get audio and video from point A to point B. So it is tough, but I do believe that we do have a kind of an edge by starting in music, by being only focused on creatives and being focused on the creator's economy. Our streaming platform is focused on that at the moment. Like we're going to stay in that boat for about the next five years until we grow out of that boat, until we need to get a bigger boat. But until then, we are really focused on helping people start a digital business via their voice or their face on a video. There you go. So what is it like building both sides of that? Because you need creators making content and you also Mm -hmm. need, you know, eyeballs and ears consuming the content. So how do you build both of those at the same time? Yeah, it's the age-old question. What comes first, a chicken or the egg? And it's so the good thing is digital. That's the easiest thing. So it is a fine line of three main categories. It's user-submitted content, curated content. So we'll make, like, for instance, we'll reach out to SAS Fuel and say, hey, we have this platform. We think what you're doing is really cool. Do you mind creating some content for us? And then you have the last piece of just licensing content, maybe going out and just calling an indie record label and say, hey, can we license your content for a year? We'll pay you royalties. Calling a production studio, hey, can we license your short films for a year? Same thing the big guys do, Netflix sure. and those guys. So they go out and find pure licensed content. And then there's that fine line of creating original content. And that's where we reach out to people. We help them create original content. And then there's that last piece that we're focused on right now is user-submitted content. If you have a nice mix of all three, the user will come because they'll say, oh, they have my favorite podcast. Oh, there's this new audio book that I didn't hear. Who made that? Oh, there's this piece of 
original dystopia content. Or they may have my favorite short film or short film I've never seen before or something I meant to watch when it was on HBO Max two years ago. So it's a very fine line. You don't want to oversupply the user, but you don't want to undersupply. We And a good thing about being a startup or being small is that we see all the mistakes of the big guys. You know, Netflix, the catalog was too big. It, it still is. so big. Yeah, yeah, it's so big that people think they can't find anything. So it becomes a, a subscription hassle where people are losing. Like, ah, it's like I watched everything. You thought you watched everything, but Netflix catalog is so big. And we've noticed that the platforms, even coming from the podcast networks, they find a niche, they stay in it, and they rather give you great original content than overloading with all the content. Take HBO Mac, for instance. They'll rotate content. They'll take it off and bring it back two years later. They'll just take it off or they will spend a lot of money in a great piece of content, Game of Thrones. They'll spend a lot, hundreds of millions of dollars in a great script, well-produced it, put it out. And then not only put it out, but make podcasts off of it, generate merch off of it, and you know, do audiobooks off in one theme. And that is the power that a Disney has with Marvel or Star Wars or HBO Max has with DC Comics. And what we're trying to do is give that same power to an individual creator. For instance, I, I noticed your book behind you. You know, I have an audio book. We got shirts to go with it. We got cool quotes that came from the book that I'm putting on shirts. I have a podcast. I have an interview video series. Where we're interviewing some of the greatest startups and CEO minds across the country. But you should have that same power to do that. Just how Disney and HBO has the same power to continually add mediums, content mediums to one brand because they have multiple brands. So it's a little easier for them, but most entrepreneurs and brands and podcasters have one brand. It's, right. what, it's them. It's themselves. So you have to keep generating new content mediums. If you plan to not only, which I try to also tell people like at some point, you're not a podcaster. You're not an artist. You're a business at some point. And that's really a key distinction. It's definitely a mindset shift. Instead of just being a creator, now you're Mm -hmm. creating an entire ecosystem around your creation. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what you're facilitating. Right. And we speak about like that. We we do a lot of talks inside schools and we try to tell the teachers that, hey, if you're going to start a podcast class in school, make sure you include the art class to design podcast covers. Make sure you include the... um, the computer class to set up mics and install software. It is a full blown new ecosystem that is coming out of the creator's economy. And it's going to, and I personally believe that it's going to produce more jobs. Like you had the manufacturing age, the information age, and we're in this new weird bridge to get to the next age. And it's something that's before the space age, but, you know, before we start traveling (laughs) to distant lands, but whatever we're in and what we're grooming now is the next economy, especially with digital currency and stuff like that. It's going to be multiple positions and jobs that are going to be created from graphic designers, from merchandisers to engineers to, you know, and technology is making 
it easier for people to learn that craft as well. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So if I create merchandise on Dystopia, and so let's say mm-hmm. we get to like the T-shirts you were saying, are those right. available in the metaverse also? Or is that something that, that you're <laughs> pursuing? <laughs> that is something we're thinking about. We do have a, I'll say, quote unquote, secret web three roadmap where once we hit a level of uh, creators, so there's a number in my head. And once I hit that number of creators, we will start offering them different packages from NFTs, upload your NFT here, store it in your dystopia wallet, create merch that can be bought and sold and then uploaded into the metaverse. Our first like realization of that was when we thought about live concerts. I had an idea of live concerts before the pandemic, where an artist can upload their music, upload their merch, and then do a live concert on Dystopia and sell digital tickets to that live concert. And the pandemic happening, and it kind of, you know, stole my thunder a little bit because then everybody was doing live concerts and live this and live events, live conferences. And now that um, the pandemic lasted longer than what we expected, people want to go back to not just live digital events they want to go in person now right so we definitely took a step back because we want to make sure that you know you only get so many summers on this planet and we and everyone got two summers stolen from them so people really want to get back out this summer and next summer and so once that dies down a little bit we will revisit that so yeah yeah that's really interesting and there's so many options of being able to do things like that uh, live where you're, it feels like you're, you really are live, but you're experiencing it digitally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the best things. example is that is the NBA. I don't know if you've ever tried the Metaverse NBA. Um, only certain games you can buy a digital ticket to an NBA game, and it's literally like you're sitting courtside. courtside. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah, unbelievable. Just the experience. It really is like being there, just without right. the, the parking hassles and traffic. <laughs> <laughs> or the $30 popcorn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I can make my own. <laughs> right. That's great. We're going to take a quick sponsor break. Speaking of sponsors, like you did a minute ago, the old model. And when we come back, we're going to ask Patrick about the biggest challenges in building dystopia and creating a SaaS for creators right after this. You ever feel like you're in uncharted waters or maybe wish there was a checklist or clear path to follow for your stage of growth? Well, we are one. Champion Leadership Group helps SaaS founders scale from 1 million to 10 million to 20 million and well beyond. Only one in 40,000 companies grows to $10 million in revenue. The rest stay small or die along the trail. Building a business is treacherous if you go alone. Instead, travel with experienced SaaS founders and expert guides who help chart your course to consistent results, impact, and freedom while providing support every step of the way. Create your free SaaS growth map at championleadership.com. And we're back at SaaS Fuel. My guest today, Patrick Hill, CEO of Disktopia. And so Patrick, in building a SaaS, you know, what were the, the big challenges that you faced in doing that and creating you know, both sides of the user base and, and then getting adoption? Well, there's two major challenges. Well, one is always going to be a challenge And the second one is kind of a current challenge. So let's start with the biggest one. Gaining user adoption globally can be a good thing and a bad thing. So we have about 10,000 users now and we're growing every day. That's really good. Uh, Very rapid. 
Yeah, and it's growing very rapidly. We have a nice ratio of paid to free customers. But the biggest hassle is when SaaS can instantly be spread out globally. It may not be your intention. You could be starting in Kansas. And next thing you know, you have a pocket of users in a certain area. So for us, our first real pocket of users that enjoyed the platform were musicians, literally French rappers from the south of France. <laughs> Those were our pocket of support tickets were coming from. It That's was like maybe 20, 30. <laughs> yeah, but our servers are located in the US. So their main complaint was bandwidth, speed, because, you know, it takes a while to get files from the US to the south of France. So then once we figure that problem out and, you know, we got to do globalization. And as if you're a SaaS owner, you understand globalization and just putting things in certain spots. The second next spot was India. We had podcasters just popping up in India. And they were complaining about the same thing. <laughs> so just building a SaaS platform, if your SaaS platform is localized, meaning I dog walk and we're only marketing in Charlotte or wherever you're located at, you don't have to worry about that problem. But what if someone says they need a dog walker in New York? And the next thing you know, it's L.A. And then you're saying, OK, well, we don't service L.A. yet. And the next thing you, know, you get 10 requests out of L.A. And 40 or 50. So once you get to a certain number, you're like, OK, I think it's more worthwhile that we do something there. And that is easier to do because, as Apple would say, the service of the SaaS is outside the platform. So when the service of the SaaS company is outside the platform, meaning you may sign up online, you may pay online, you may do everything online, but the actual services you're paying for, such as dog walking, food delivery, or anything like that, those are easier to scale because you can limit it to a location. But when the actual service is digital, like accounting or file processing, or in our case, streaming, you don't have an excuse to be localized. Right. So you People really show up where they show those, up. Yeah, they show up where they show up and you kind of kind of got to service them where they are. So that was a real hurdle for us because we went from like two customers to like 150 in two weeks. And then from like 150 to 400. And then we just kept going, 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 going and growing from there. And they were all pockets, pockets, like 10 users in Ireland. Oh, 100 users in Virginia. Oh, we got four users in Brazil. And so we just really figure out infrastructure wise, how are we a small team going to go global from an infrastructure very fast? Because we don't want, you could blow up overnight in any country, anywhere, any time. Yeah. So, but that also introduces a new current struggle, which we don't hope lasts for years is resources, developers, software engineers, product owners, those at this current moment are some of our toughest challenges is finding talent. It seems like corporate America has got the best of the best, paid them very well, paid them to stay. And then you do have some good freelancers here and there, but you know, you really want someone's dedicated to your team. You want someone's dedicated to your right. project right. and so on and finding, you know, quality developers or quality resources period. And that's dedicated to the work can be hard. So, you know, we try, we're, we're trying, I would say. So those are the, one is a challenge that just came to us by being a SaaS and that can happen to anyone. The other sure. one we hope 
it's just temporary for all SaaS owners. We don't hopefully we don't hope to be into this um this pickle that we're in as a technologist. Uh, I think resources are always constrained, and you know, right. particularly people. And so that is something that is uh, somewhat universal. There are certainly things you can do to to overcome those. But that is something that that yeah, I think every SaaS owner struggles with on mm-hmm. uh, on an ongoing basis. And, and of course, right. I mean, even running a SaaS myself, the, the thing I hear always, always, always from the development team is we need more people. We need more people. You know, we, right. And that would that solve the problem? Sometimes, but uh, not not always. More people is not always. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. We always try to live, but I'd rather have five great engineers than 20 okay engineers. Yeah. So we kind of, because you're going to get the same product at the same speed. You have five great engineers. They're going to get it done and get it done right. Right. Maybe you have 20 okay average ones. They're going to get it done and get it done right. But they're probably going to do it at the same speed and quality as just five good people. So we try to do that instead of just, you know, pulling them randomly. Yeah, I have made that mistake a time or two. (laughs) All right. (laughs) As we all do. Yeah. Quantity does not equal quality. No. Having a great team. So I really feel your pain there. I'm sure other SaaS owners do as well because resources are always constrained, whether they're financial or human, or we all all deal with those same resource constraints. So with with globalization, have you tackled multilingual, multi-currency? Was that something that that happened early in the process or was that users? Yes. It's actually based on users. So all of our users are bilingual, their native language and English because we haven't done any you know, multilingual server deployments yet. Okay. So what we have learned though is even though they are bilingual, they're distributing their podcasts in their native language. So we are having some um, character issues. We fixed those. So like we ha- like I told you, we started our user growth exploded in India from a percentage per standpoint. And so the language uh, Hindu has certain characters. Sure. So they want their podcast title in those characters. And so people don't understand that uh, those characters go into an RSS feed and every RSS feed may reject <laughs> some certain characters. So it's it's a everyday, you know, that's like a business as usual type thing. And we're learning and we're growing, but we're glad we're hitting those, you know, we're hitting our head on those those obstacles now so that in the future, those that's one less thing you got to do. One less thing you got to worry about. Yeah, that's good. Taking the challenges as they come. And I have right. to tell you, I'd had no idea that rap existed in the south of France. And so now I'm going to have to get on the platform <laughs> and go find some French rap. Maybe oh, I was I normally listen to, but I got to check that out. Yeah, it it's interesting, especially when they're French rapping and and it rhymes, but I don't know what word is. <laughs> have no idea what they're like, saying. No, but it has a melody and everything, and they're doing. And that's the biggest difference. I do want to mention that is that the, the biggest difference about global content creation and U.S. based content creation is that there is no structure globally. So, for instance, take the music industry. It's very structured in America. Very structured. Labels, marketing, even like agencies. Agents from even some podcasters have agents to structure their their sponsorship deals outside of the U.S. It's very few people that have that type of structure. And it's used because a U.S. company has an office in that country. So you'll see it in the U.K. a little bit. You'll see it in Australia. You might see it in like Japan, which are kind of Western leaning countries. But outside of that, it's 
hey man, this is my music. I'm gonna do what I want to do. Hey, this is my podcast. I do what I want. There is no structure. So that's why we see a lot of potential in not just the creators economy, but the global creators economy, where a lot of individuals and entrepreneurs are literally going to change not only their lives, but the lives after them and generations just based off in doing what they love to do, which is entertain people or educate people. So it's weird that we figured that out and industry people knew about it, but from a tech standpoint, you know, everything we do is kind of structured. So when we found that there's no structure to any type of content outside of the U.S., it's actually a win-win because we don't have a lot of red tape to go through either. Uh, that's really smart. It's an interesting observation, just the, the differences in that. Oh. And creators want to create no matter where they are, what they're doing. You know, that is what they want to do. And you're providing that them that, that infrastructure or the, the playground maybe is a better way right. to do yeah, that. The fastest grow- yeah, exactly. And the fastest growing creative space is in Southern and Eastern Europe and Africa. That's the hotbed. So if you think about from the Middle East all the way down to South Africa, just kind of like that pocket. I mean, with technology being cheap as it is, you have over 100 countries in Africa and they kind of skipped the landline phase that other countries had. Right. You know, they're getting grant broadband. So they don't have to dig, you know, everything's Wi-Fi. Everything's open. You know, they're putting up, you know, towers instead of digging and putting down lines where we kind of had an infrastructure for decades in the U.S. So they're getting on the Internet faster. And then once they get on the Internet, they're using platforms and like mines and others just to talk and make music and distribute it just in their own local area. And they're helping supplement what they do. And some go beyond that and create a whole entire enterprise. But, you know, yeah, that's interesting. South America is really, really interesting, too. It's giving a voice to the voiceless in South America, but you're going to see it really take off. There's around almost three million podcasts to date. They expect that to kind of incrementally go up 20 percent every year. So and of course, podcasting is dominated by the U.S., U.K. and Australia at the moment. Right. So you think we're going to see a lot more international players come into the market? Yes. And we won't know about them, but they will know about them. Like that country, that region will definitely, there'll be very, very big pockets of listeners in certain countries. The average country probably has about, what, 10, 15 million people. So if you're a popular podcast in that region, you might not be popular in this country but you may have a hundred thousand monthly users. I mean, listeners. And that is. That's huge in a market like that. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. You uh, you have what? Three percent to 3% of the population listening to you, which is huge in any market, you know, you know, sure. That's a lot of power, a lot of great responsibility. That's Spider-Man would say, you know, (laughs) there you go. Great. So tell me about uh, consistency. How important has that been in your journey? You said at the very beginning, it was uh, you know, a short decision and a long journey. So tell me about yep. that and the consistency. So yeah, for us, it was an easy decision to do it, but we just had to get there. And once we got there, you have to stay consistent. And I think that's when anything, first and foremost. But the average podcast, you know, as of today, doesn't make it past episode seven. They just don't have the stamina to make it past that episode. And ones who do are like 10 times likely to be successful. They're also a hundred times likely to actually generate revenue. 
So I always tell podcasters, you got to make it to episode seven. And, you know, that's that secret number anyway, of habits, where habits are formed. You know, you, you can form a daily routine seven times, but you can form an ingrained habit on the 21st time. And that's really back to science and math of doing something seven times, three times in a row. And so you have that 21st nice. time. Yes. Yeah, so consistency is everything. Consistency is key in podcasting because you just have to keep going and you'll get better at it. And you'll learn how to do things and how not to do things. Consistency is key in music because of the concentration of how many artists they are. There are way more indie artists than there are actually, you know, popular artists, of course. You know, 80% of everything that's listed on streaming platform is only done by 20% of the artists. Wow. That's a no. Yeah. So you have to be consistent just by the sheer number of competitors you have out there. You know, if they're blessed enough, everyone has two ears and two eyes and you only have 24 hours a day. Typically eight hours of that is consumed by dreams. So you really got to make good content, get it out there and be consistent with it. Oh, that's good. So what does the future look like for dystopia for you, Patrick? And, uh, you know, that the future of creativity in the digital world. Yeah, our roadmap is long, but it's we're steady on that road and we're going forward. We're looking to be the premier streaming as a service, honestly. That's, you know, some people say SaaS, but we say streaming as a service. We want to be able to supply you with a pipeline to get your content from A to B, whether that's a podcast, an album, an audio book, or a video. We want to provide that streaming as a service to you. We want we don't we don't want to be no gatekeeper or hold you from any of your streams or any of your listeners. We do look to become a household name. That's our overall long term goal. But in the short term, we want to make sure that you can upload your content and get paid for it or give it away for free. It's really your decision. That's our short term growth. That was our very first feature on our uh, sprint board was upload. <laughs> can I upload something and upload it correctly? <laughs> So we've jumped that hurdle, you know, more, many more hurdles on the roadmap. But that's what we're playing to be. When I was in the banking industry, the CEO said that, you know, we don't want to be the best bank or the biggest bank. We want to be the world's most admirable brand. And I took that to heart. I think about that a lot, at least weekly, about not just being the best technology platform. We want to be an admirable brand. And whether that's in the U.S. or globally, we want to make sure that we are uh, standing by that. I always tell my team, I said, hey, the biggest team is not us. The biggest team at one day would be customer service. I want the most people on the chat lines and answering phones as possible. I, um, I also tell them that that's the way dystopia will win is providing customer service. Because at this point, we can't outspend them. We definitely don't have the budget <laughs> of uh, even Podbean, you know, one of the smaller hosting platforms or Buzzsprout compared to an anchor anchor has about 60% of the market when it comes to hosting. But outside of that, you know, we can't outspend them. So we have to learn how to compete in other ways. And we're going to do that with our brand and with our customer service as like much that. as possible. Yeah. So as, uh, and you bring up a really interesting point, and this is true with uh, a, a lot of clients that, uh, that I work with, a lot of people in the, the SaaS space, is they're going up against some pretty big giants, big competitors. Are. What are some they key are. ways that, that you see as, you know, how to compete, you know, outside of brand and service, you know, with those big competitors, you know, what are some ways that you can differentiate and set yourselves apart? The biggest way is being nimble. 
I always don't take out, and I'm gonna tell all SAS fans, don't take your your small but mighty approach. It's always good and be humble in that small but mighty approach because you are smaller and take the mighty turns. You don't want to do a quick pivot. You just want to go around. Being small allows you to navigate the forest a lot easier. It's like a fish, you know, how quickly can a whale turn around versus a bass or yeah. a, a sea trout? You know, you can kind of turn around and go back the same direction and kind of stop a little quicker. You know, if a whale is going at full speed, you know, what it takes to stop a whale and for, or slow down a whale versus, you know, someone who's smaller mind. So I don't, don't take that for granted because that has actually helped us where we can build features that the big guys can build faster and release them faster because we don't have, you know, hundred people to go through for one. And for two, we can kind of see, you know, we can navigate the storm a little bit better. And also we learn from their mistakes. It's like, Whoa, we swell. They didn't do that. Well, let's go ahead and build a, <laughs> build something in our thing to stop that. And partnerships. When you're small but mighty, you can also partner with other small and mighty companies and do integrations faster, which also build your acquisition model a lot faster. You get customers faster. So don't take for granted the partnerships at this stage either. You know, a lot of companies at our level would try to say, oh, we need to get the biggest partner and the biggest customer now. And they forget about just partnering with your local government or partnering with the local school system or partnering with the local art gallery. In our case, just partnering with the local art institute here in Charlotte has brought us more customers than any Google ad would do. You know, you know, it's just that's brilliant just doing those partnerships. Yeah. So from a rate of customers, it's done those numbers, just reaching out and say, hey, we're a new platform. We're here for the creators. You know anybody who needs to test this out. Two students tested out, spread the word. And now the school is, is a customer of ours, the entire school. That's fantastic. So how can people right. learn more about you and about Dystopia online? Oh, always, you know, dystopia.com, all our social handles are dystopia on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook, we're play dystopia. So facebook.com slash play dystopia. I'm on LinkedIn, Patrick Hill. I have the uh, yellow sunshine background. So just let me know. If you have any comments, questions, I'll try to get back to them as fast as I can. I do want to make sure that uh, founders of uh, color in there, you know, and I'm an open book. You know, I'll tell you about my journey of getting started. It's hard being a founder and a businessman as already. It's definitely hard for women entrepreneurs. Sure. It's very hard. It's very hard for them to raise capital. I just tell them to stick in there and reach out to me and if I made a mistake, I'll tell you, don't do that. <laughs> this is what I did. <laughs> and then take that advice with a grain of salt. But hopefully, it'll, it, you know, I always take this line from Jay-Z. Jay-Z has his line. And I'll put my name in that thing. It says, Patrick went through that. So hopefully you won't have to go through that. You know, love it. So that's what I tell people, you know, I did those things. So hopefully you won't have to make those mistakes. That's great. And we'll make sure and link all of those down in the show notes. Sure. Uh, Patrick, really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Patrick Hill for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Patrick and Disctopia at disctopia.com. That's D-I-S-C, like a compact disc, disctopia.com. And of course, check him out on all social media as well. 
If you're a creative, a creator, or just like exclusive original content, be sure and check them out at dystopia.com. You don't have to be a creator to use it. You can actually consume content too. So as always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. So please subscribe and follow us at sassfuel.com on whatever platform you like. I would be very grateful if you did. So everyone who subscribes this week can vote on whether to cook the turkey in the oven, on the grill, or in the fryer. Just send an email or chat over with your vote, and I'll let you know what happens. Well, join us next week for our conversation with David Bonney, founder and CEO of 45.io. 45.io is a sales operations SaaS platform, combines sales methodology and technology for faster adoption, which is really hard to get salespeople to use the tech, faster adoption, increased close rate, and more scalable results for your business. You know, sales is always challenging, especially as we head into the holidays and the new year. And David has great insights to keep that revenue flowing year round. So be sure to check it out next week. Well, happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Share gratitude this week. And as always, enjoy the journey.